you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. It's the lie straight from the pit of hell that all of us deal with at times in our lives that says to us that that one thing that you don't have is the one thing that will make you happy. Prosperity. It's a part of our culture to want to have the best, the nicest car, the biggest house. But is the pursuit of prosperity what God wants us to be focused on? Do others suffer because of our desire to have more stuff? God is not anti-new car. He's not anti-nice house. I really don't think he is. I think God blesses people and he has his purposes for that. That's not it. What, what is it is that when those things. That stuff becomes, this is what my life is about. This is the focus of my life. This is where I spend the most of my time, most of my energy, and most of my resources in the pursuit of stuff. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today, we come to Revelation chapter 18 in our year-long study of the last book of the Bible. Chapter 18 introduces us to the judgment that is to come on the world economic system that will be run by the Antichrist during the tribulation period. As Pastor Clay is going to show us today, this judgment is an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, how much is enough? As followers of Jesus, does our pursuit of prosperity diminish our pursuit of God and obedience to Him? We're glad you've joined us today as the Revelation series continues on Crosswalk. We're in Revelation chapter 18, and if you've been with us, you, you may remember that I said that we're in the midst of what is the last three uh, judgments that take place on earth uh, in the book of Revelation. We know we've still got the final judgment to come, and we'll see that. But the last three judgments that take place on earth, we're in the middle of that. In chapter 17, we saw that the, the, the false religious system of the world was judged. In, in Revelation chapter 17, if you're with us, you remember that it's referred to as a, as a harlot, a prostitute. Uh, because uh, th- this religious system that will exist after the church is, is taken out has basically caused men, caused mankind to sell their, uh, to give their worship to, to false gods and false idols and false religions. And as a result of that, God will actually use the beast or the Antichrist, as he's known, to turn on the religious system which he has used to gain his power. He and the ten kings that, uh, that, that give him his power, they will turn on this religious system and they will destroy this false religious system that, uh, uh, that has been a prostitute. And uh, if you're with us for the very first time, we've been walking through Revelation for a year. So if you're with us for the first time, you may be saying, what? Whoa. Um, it's okay. Uh, stay with us. That was chapter 17. Now we come to chapter 18. And if, you, and if you do remember a few weeks ago, I said we begin to see the judgment on the uh, economic uh, system of the world, the, the indulgence of, of wealth and prosperity that eventually comes specifically in the tribulation period. And we'll talk more about that in, a, in uh, just a moment. But uh, it's the middle judgment of these last three judgments. Now, I'm going to attempt to, as a matter of fact, I am. I don't even care what time it is. Uh, I am going to get through all of chapter 18. I really need to get through all of chapter 18 today. So I may end up just giving you uh, some blanks to fill in and highlights at the end. We'll see. But uh, I really want to get through chapter 18. And we're doing it a little differently today. We're going to actually read the text as we uh, go through it here this morning. And Revelation chapter 18 basically breaks down into... Uh, 
four parts or, or four calls is what I'm referring to, to them as. Four calls. And quite honestly, I'll just confess to you, I really liked uh, the wording that uh, the biblical commentator Warren Wearsby uses, so I'm borrowing uh, some of his wording. It's not exactly the same as the way he put it, but I'm borrowing some of his wording because I just like the way that he uh, put it. Four uh, calls in Revelation chapter 18, and uh, we're going to look at it. The first call is, uh, looks like this. It's the call of condemnation. The first call is the call of condemnation. Revelation chapter 18, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality." The call of condemnation. You know, it would be interesting sometime, uh, and I don't know that I ever really realized it before until I started this really in-depth study of the book of Revelation, but it would be interesting sometime to do a study just on the angels in the book of Revelation. You know what, have you, have you noticed all these angels and all the different descriptions of these angels that show up? I think it would be fascinating to do a study just of the angels in the book of Revelation. As far as I know, this is the first time that we're introduced to this angel who the text says... Uh, coming down from having, having great authority. And the earth was illumined with his glory. It's speculation, but I believe it's probably implying that this angel with great authority is one of the angels that is continually in the presence of God, God Almighty. That angel is continually in his presence, and as a result of that, that angel reflects the glory of God. Much like, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments uh, from God, and he came down, you remember the story, maybe even read it as a child, he came down, and his face was glowing with the what's referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. His face Reflecting, and the people couldn't even look on him. They're like, "Oh, we can't even." He's, he's so we can't even look on Moses, and he had to veil his face. If you remember that story, I think this is much the same. That this angel with great authority, in other words, he's coming from the presence of God with the power and the authority of God. That he reflects the glory of God uh, over the entire earth as he comes, and he comes with this 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 judgment, this message of condemnation, as the text says, on Babylon the Great. Well, now, if you've been with us, uh, you know that Babylon the Great has already been used to symbolically represent, and I referred to it just a moment ago, to symbolically represent the false religions of the world because Babylon was the birthplace of false religion in the world. It's the place where idol worship and, and the chasing after false gods, where it all kind of started. Uh, and you can go back to a couple, two, three weeks ago and listen online and, and, and hear that message if you want to see that. But it was referred to, Babylon the Great was referred to as the, as the religious uh, harlot, you remember, back, back there. And so now here we come again to Babylon the Great. Well, is, is this just a repeat now of chapter 17 or are we just talking about the same judgment? No, we're not. Because the text clearly says in verse 18, 
after these things, I saw another angel coming down. After what things? After the things that we've just seen in chapter 17. On the timeline of the events of the book of Revelation, the judgment of chapter 17 takes place approximately halfway through the tribulation period. So this judgment takes place sometime after that, but still is being used, still being used in that is this idea of Babylon the Great. So the natural question is, who is, what is Babylon the Great in chapter 18? In chapter 17, it was the religious system. What is it in chapter 18? Well, there are a few ideas. One of those is, is that it represents the literal city of Babylon. That it's referring to a judgment that's going to come upon the literal city of Babylon that will come back into existence during the tribulation period. And there are people that hold to that position. Uh, there's also the, uh, the belief that it symbolically represents the literal city of Rome. And we've looked at Rome and how Rome you know, comes back into prominence during the tribulation period and comes back into power. And, uh, and Babylon is used as a code word for Rome uh, in other places in the New Testament. And there, so there are people that believe, well, he's talking about there's going to be judgment on the literal city of Rome. Uh, a third possibility is that it's referring to some other city. I, I read one guy uh, that builds a case for why he believes that this Babylon the Great is actually New York City. Come on, let's do it. New York City? Just, you just had to do it, right? I mean, it's too perfect an opportunity. Uh, that he believes it's actually New York City because... Arguably, New York City is the commerce capital of the world. And so uh, that guy says, it, well, it's New York City. The fourth uh, idea, possibility, is that uh, Babylon the Great symbolically represents the economic, materialistic world system. So which is it? Well, I've already tipped my hand that uh, Revelation chapter 18 and Babylon the Great is referring to uh, symbolically representing the, the materialistic, economic, and political world system that will be judged specifically in the tribulation period, but in, in a very real sense represents uh, the, the, the economic system or the idea of, of wealth and, and, and grabbing all you can and, well, are you saying you can't have wealth? No, stay with me. Um, that, that all of it throughout history is being judged. Uh, Warren Wearsby uh, puts it like this. When he says, the phrase, is fallen, is fallen, not only adds dramatic effect to the announcement, but suggests a dual judgment. Ecclesiastical Babylon, ecclesiastical simply means religious or, or church or religious. So uh, ecclesiastical revelation in, uh, or Babylon, the harlot in Revelation 17, and political or economic Babylon here in Revelation chapter 18. Uh, so Babylon is the religious representation and it is the economic because not only was Babylon the birthplace of false religion, it also was uh, the richest, I think arguably you could say it was the richest city of the ancient world. It was incredibly wealthy, incredibly opulent and powerful in its day. So it is this call of condemnation upon this this economic system, 
fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison. Look at this verse 2. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Well, that's some strange language. What's that all about? Sounds like something out of an old Alfred Hitchcock film, doesn't it? Uh, it's simply referring to the fact that wherever the, uh, the allure, if I can use that term, the allure of, of possessions and greed and, and power, that wherever those things exist, that's where you'll find the, uh, the, the presence of demonic influence, driving people towards something that takes them away from God. Uh, don't get hung up on the whole bird thing. It, it, it's, just, it's just a way of referring to, to the demons that work in this world. Uh, some of you may remember Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the sower. Jesus refers to birds to represent a satanic influence in the world. So it's simply saying that, that this, this idea of I've got to have or I've got to be wealthy. See, it's the lie, ladies and gentlemen. It's the lie straight from the pit of hell that all of us deal with at times in our lives. It's the lie from the pit of hell that says to us that that one thing that you don't have is the one thing that will make you happy. That, that one possession that you haven't quite a, a, a obtained yet is the one thing that will really, then I'll be content, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied in life once I just get that. If you think about it, it's the same lie that Satan's been telling throughout history. It's the same lie that was told to Adam and Eve. I mean, think about this for a moment. Adam and Eve literally have the entire world at their fingertips. They have everything. Besides, you know, all the fruit, and, and I'm sure it must have, I mean, if it tasted good, tastes good now, fruit, how much have it tasted before the fall? As, as my, uh, Michael made uh, reference to Romans and the fact that the earth groans under the sin curse. How, how much it have been before the fall? They, they got all the fruit. Listen, they've got purpose in life. They've got meaning. They've got joy. They've got sexual fulfillment. They've got satisfaction. They've got everything they could possibly ever need or want in life. And here comes Satan. He says, oh, no, 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 no. No, you don't have that. You don't have that. But if you had that, then you'd be happy. Then you'd be satisfied. Then you'd be complete. You'd be like God. And they bought the lie. They bit the fruit and they paid the price. It's the allure of things. And God says there's a judgment coming on that whole idea, that whole mentality. Um, specifically, yes, in the tribulation period. But just that whole idea. Again, uh, Wearsby says this uh, The world system satisfies the desires of the earth dwellers who follow the beast and reject the lambs, referring in the tribulation period. But worldly things never permanently satisfy or last. Have you learned that in your lives yet, ladies and gentlemen? They never permanently satisfy or last. The love of pleasures and possessions is but an an insidious form of idolatry, demonic in its origin and destructive in its outcome. And God says there is condemnation coming upon that system. Now, that begs the question for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. Okay, where do I fit into that? I know what it is to desire things. And I do. You do. Is that wrong? Uh, Where do I strike a balance? How do I discover how much is enough stuff? 
Where is that balance between the, the, the spiritual, which is eternal, and the temporal, the materialistic, which is passing away? How do I find that? Let's, uh, let's see if the, the next call kind of uh, deals with that. And, and that is what is referred to as the call of separation. It's the call of condemnation first in verse 1 through 3, and then the call of separation. Now watch what happens in verses 4 through 8. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. It's the call of separation. Uh, the call suddenly changes to the believers. Now, the believers, that, those that come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period, who will still be alive at that time, will have to resist the temptation to give in to the Antichrist. Yes, absolutely. But really, it's a, it's a call of separation for all of the church, for all of the followers of God throughout all of, age, all of the ages. And we can look at it biblically. Uh, Abram, who God changed his name to Abraham, was, was called to come out from among his very own people, his, his family, his relatives, to come out from among them because they chased after false gods and, and worshipped false idols. The nation of Israel, when God brought them up out of Egypt, was warned not to turn back to Egypt where they worshipped false gods and not to, to, in, to get involved with the, with the people of the lands that they were going to, to take because they were chasing after false gods and false religions as well. And the same is true for the church in, in John's day as he writes this, and the same is true for the church, the followers of Jesus today. We are called to come out to be separate from the things of the world. Now, we'll see if we can define that in just a moment or, or at least think about those things. But here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, listen to what he says. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? By the way, uh, there's specific application of that to those of you who perhaps are in a dating situation and thinking about marriage and who you should marry. There's not a closer connection on this earth than a husband and a wife. And Paul's pretty clear that a follower of Jesus has no business being in a relationship with someone who's not a follower of Jesus. I know. Believe me, I did, I did student ministry for years. I know how, oh, but, but I, think I'll, I think I'll bring him to Jesus. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? See these comparisons he's making? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them, unbelievers. In Haiti, they would say, Vinny, 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 Vinny. Come, come, come. Come out from them, unbelievers, and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit, and let us work toward complete Holiness, because we fear, hold in reverence, hold in awe, God. It's the call of separation. And John, the, the angel speaks and John writes it here. God is clearly saying, get, come out away from them. Get separate from them. And he gives two reasons for it. The first is so that they will uh, avoid participation with them. That's what he says. Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins. The idea of, uh, as I, I said earlier, all of us know this, of, of, man, if I could just have this, or I'd sure like to have that, and, and how do I know how much is too much stuff, and where do I find that balance in my life? We've got to be careful that we don't participate in this very thing. And you know what I've discovered, especially in light of this, this trip to Haiti? It, you, don't, you don't have to be wealthy. Uh, you, poor, can't, poor doesn't even begin to describe the people in Haiti. They are desperately poor, the people that, the vast majority of people. And we are, all of us, okay, are opulently wealthy compared to them. I think I wrote this in one of my pastor's perspectives this week. But 50%, half of the population of the island of Haiti, or the, the country of Haiti, about 9 million people, I believe, on the island, 50% of them exist on less than $60 a year. We are opulently wealthy compared to them. But, but you, you know, it, that allure, that pull of possessions, and that, that that will be the thing that will make me happy... It could strike anybody. There was a young man that I worked with all week. His name was Jude. Uh, he's 16 years old, and he kind of self-adopted uh, into my family. He kept calling me dad all week. Dad, dad, <laughs> dad, can you get a hammer? Dad, can you get nails? Uh, I'm a good gopher. Um, Jude, Jude kept looking at my, my watch. Some of you know I do like watches. I have a few watches. I'm not an enormous amount of watch, but I have, but I have a mission I have a mission watch. I have a watch I wear on the mission field. And, um, and it just tells me stuff. It'll, it, besides the time, it, it'll give me the, it's supposed to give me the altitude. It's supposed to give me the, it's got a compass. It's got a barometer. It tells me the temperature. Um, uh, it does some, I don't remember what else. But anyways, it's not working very well. So I got to send it off, see if they can, they can fix it. But Jude kept looking at my watch and he kept saying, uh, Dad, that is a nice watch. That is a, Dad, that's a nice watch. Now, I know what Jude wants. Jude wants me to give him the watch. And you understand, you can say, well, he's begging. Sure. They don't have anything. And by the way, he was, and some other guys were working as volunteers. They weren't even paid. We took up a collection and, and gave them some money. But, but here's the thing. I didn't give Jude the watch. Not because I couldn't give it up, but because Jude needs to learn this. And, I, and this is what I said to Jude. I said, Jude, it's just stuff. It's just stuff, Jude. Now, I don't know whether he could could really grasp that or not, but it's that allure of possessions and that, boy, if I had that, then, then I'm going to be 
okay. And God says, no, that's, that's not going to do it for you either. Watch out for this participating in that. He gives another reason too, uh, not only to avoid the participation, but he, he gets in this idea to avoid the plagues. He says that you may not receive her plagues. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, there's always a cost to sin. There's always a cost to sin. And we think, well, yeah, um, if I commit murder or I, uh, or I uh, lie or steal or whatever, but what about just those, the idea of, of just getting caught up with, boy, the stuff of this world and having more. There's a penalty coming, and no matter how powerful or strong that the Antichrist economic system and political system may appear, uh, the text makes it clear that swiftly, God will, will strike it down, that it will come to ruin in the tribulation period. And it's understanding that, that the things that are of, are of spiritual value live on, they're eternal. And the things of temporal value are passing away so quickly in our lives. It's the, this call of separation to be different from those around us. Well, so, well, I... I guess I just better, uh, I just better separate from out. Just I better, I better go live in a cave or up on a mountain or a hole in the ground or something, and just get completely away because that's the only way I'm not going to be drawn in or tempted or lured to to want more and more stuff. I better just go and get away completely. No, no, that's the mistake that the monastics made. Really, before the monastics, but in the Middle Ages there began to be. Uh, men of God and, and women of God who said, man, the, the, the things of the world, the temptations of the world, they're so powerful, they're so strong. I, I just better separate from that. I'm going to go live literally in a hole in the ground or a cave or, or up on a pole or, uh, or where I'm going to go live someplace. And they began to form these monasteries where these, these people would live, these men would live together and, and they would try and live very minimal lives. There'd be very little conversation they would try and meditate on the Word of God just for hours every day, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But what is wrong is, is well, a couple of things. Number one, you don't have to be in the presence of temptation for temptation to be there. Have you all ever discovered that? As a matter of fact, sometimes knowing that you can't have it, it just can consume your mind and make you think about it even more. So just because you get away from it physically doesn't mean that you're getting away from the temptation. The other problem, and the major problem with it is... You and I are called to engage the world around us. Not participate in, uh, Paul's pretty clear about that in 2 Corinthians, not to participate in, but still to engage. Jesus said, you and I are called to be salt and light in a world that is decaying and dark, and we cannot do that from inside the walls of the church house. We have to go outside and engage the world around us. It's separate but not away from them. Call separation. Real quickly, uh, let me give you the, the third one here. The third uh, call is the call of lamentation. Now, that's an old word, but let's, let, let me read it here, uh, beginning in verse uh, 9. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, meaning the, the, the system of, of wealth and, and prosperity, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. 
And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble. We could insert words like, uh, like expensive cars and big houses and just the, the, the opulence of the world and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and weed and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city. She who was clothed in the linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid to waste, and every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. It's the call of lamentation. It is an old word, but it basically means to weep, to be broken, to mourn, to cry violently as a result of, of your loss. Verse 19, again, it, it says, and they threw dust on their heads. It was, it's, a, it's an Eastern custom of, of showing grief. And we're crying out and weeping and mourning and saying, whoa, whoa, the great city, which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid to waste. They are absolutely broken in mourning over their loss of material possessions. Do you want to know why? Because when wealth and material possessions are the only thing that you have any, that you place any value on, when those things are the only thing that you gauge the the quality of your life by, when those things are gone, there's simply nothing left. I was was reading about the the Great Depression, um, which kind of all came down when the stock market crashed in 1929. It wasn't the only uh, cause. There were a number of reasons for it, but the, the stock market crash of 1920, I want to read just a little bit of this to you uh, as kind of the things that, that happened in people's lives when, when the stock market crashed literally, literally, you know, this whole idea of one hour or one day, literally in one day, Tens of millions of dollars disappeared from our economy. And, and, and tens of millions of dollars that people had, had earned their entire life, had built up and become extremely wealthy on, was gone, evaporated, disappeared. J.J. Royden, president of the county trust company, took a pistol from a teller's cage at his bank, went to his home in downtown Manhattan and shot himself. The news was suppressed until after the bank closed at noon Saturday to avoid causing a run on the bank. A vice president of the Earl Radio Corporation jumped to his death from a window of a Manhattan hotel. 
His suicide note read, We are broke. Last April I was worth $100,000. Today I'm $24,000 in the red. Jesse Livermore, perhaps the most famous of the Wall Street speculators, shot himself. Winston Churchill, visiting New York, was awakened the day after Black Tuesday by the noise of a crowd outside the Savoy Plaza Hotel. Here's what he says. Under my very window, a gentleman cast himself down 15 stories and was dashed to pieces, causing a wild commotion and the arrival of the fire brigade. Historian William Klingeman says asphyxiation by gas was the most common method of doing oneself in, although there were considerable variety. He writes, the wife of a Long Island broker shot herself in the heart. A utilities executive in Rochester, New York, shut himself in his bathroom and opened a wall jet of illuminating gas. St. Louis broker swallowed poison. Philadelphia financier shot himself in his athletic club. A divorcee in Allentown, Pennsylvania, closed the doors and windows of her home and turned on a gas oven. In Milwaukee, one gentleman who took his own life left a note that read, my body should go to science, my soul to Andrew Mellon, who was part of all this... uh, collapse and everything, and sympathy to my creditors. For what? It's just stuff in it, Paris. For money? For, for trappings? For, for 401ks? For, for what? It's just stuff. And, and that, that's what God's saying. It, it, it's just temporal. It's, it's stuff that's not going to be here. It's, it's not going to last and, and if that becomes the, the consuming purpose of my life, and each of us in this room have to decide whether it is or is not, but if, if, if just the, the chasing after the stuff of life, whether it's retirement or, or, or whatever, okay? And, and by the way, God is not anti-retirement plans. He's not anti, he is anti-retirement, I'm talking about in his service, um, but he's not anti new car. He's not anti-nice house. I really don't think he is. I think God blesses people and he has his purposes for that, that, that we can use resources to channel through for the kingdom of God. And, and so it, it, that's not it. What, what is it is that when those things, that stuff becomes, this is what my life is about. This is the focus of my life. This is where I spend the most of my time, most of my energy, and most of my resources in the pursuit of... I finished reading earlier this year a book by Craig Groeschel entitled The Christian Atheist. And um, in the book, he, had, there was this, he made this statement. It was a quote, I believe. Either he made it himself or it's from Max Licato book. But anyway, uh, when I read it a few months ago, I, I put that quote on my Facebook status that day, and I had a lot of people respond to it. Uh, the, the statement is this, is what it says. We will never discover lasting happiness in the temporary things of this world. It's very simple, because we weren't made to live a temporary life. But if that's what life is for you, I'm telling you, it it can evaporate in a moment. And even if it doesn't, I'm going to say it, the old joke, even if it doesn't, you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. What gives value? And meaning to your life. One one more, real quickly. Uh, The last call is this. It is the call uh, to celebration. Let me me just uh, read this real quickly. Verse 20. Listen to what God says. Over this whole idea of bringing down the the, the opulence and and the idea that men for generations have have gotten wealthy by by, uh, abusing and using others and and have focused on, on what 
was simply temporal. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. That's, that's, that's so awesome. There's, there's coming a day when they're no more having to worry about keeping up with the Joneses. You know the old saying. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeteers will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And God says, rejoice, celebrate the fact that this judgment is coming and that the pursuit of of stuff will come to an end and things that are eternal will be the things that will be focused on and what will really matter. Rejoice, celebrate. Um, I mentioned a little bit about Haiti and the conditions. Um, which, which, you know, is really sad to look at and, and to think about and everything. Let me, let me tell you about uh, somebody. Uh, the, I mentioned a team from Indiana that went with us, uh, uh, two doctors and some nurses. Uh, but they worked with down there uh, two Haitian doctors. Uh, Dr. Dr. Glad, Gladimir, I think was everybody just called him Dr. Glad, and his fiance, who I never did know her name because... Russell kept calling her Madam Doctor, and that just kind of stuck. So we, she was just Madam, Madam Doctor. Dr. Glad and, and Madam Doctor, they're, they're engaged. They're, they're going to be married. They're American-trained doctors who've gone back to Haiti and are living in Haiti. Dr. Glad was, was telling Aaron, the EMT, and, Aaron, and then Aaron was telling me that when the earthquake struck, the day the earthquake struck in January, he was in his office at the hospital, and it began to shake. So he said there were a few little tremors before, and that's happened before anything. And then this violent shaking, just so violent, that he got up, he tried to look out the window uh, out of the mountains to see if he could see if everything was shaking or whether it was just this building, what was going on. And he was being thrown so violent, violently back and forth, he couldn't even look out the window. He was being thrown around so much. Dr. Glad uh, lived 24-7 for three months, he lived on the streets of Port-au-Prince. Literally did not leave the streets of Port-au-Prince for three months because there were so many people dead and dying and wounded. We, we went by a grave where 80,000 people were buried. One mass grave. Dr. Glad didn't see his fiance. It was two weeks before he ever even saw her. He'd, he'd gotten a text that she was all right. But he lived on the streets and just, just ministered to the people. They live in, in these houses that, that we built. These houses that we built are made of two-by-fours and, 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 and tin on the roof and, and tarp, a uh, plastic tarp. That's where they live. The, she lives with her, her sister who's also a doctor, and, and they're getting married. And that, that's where they're going to live, in one of these lean-to sh- sheds is, is what it is. Anytime they get anything, they, they give it away. They, they work 16, 17, 18-hour days, six, seven days a week. They pour their life into the people of Haiti, and they have so much joy. I mean, they just smile all the time. They're just smiling. 
And um, Aaron and I were talking about the fact that, uh, that that couple could go back to the States, easily pull down half a million dollars a year, have the big house, drive the big car, chase the big dream. And instead, they're investing their life in a place that is the worst conditions that you can possibly imagine. That's worth celebrating. When people begin to understand that, that the focus of the kingdom is so much more valuable than the focus of the things of this world. And that when we focus our lives on, on kingdom-focused purposes, it gives so much more meaning to life. It gives so much more purpose to life. It gives so much more fulfillment to life. And it glorifies God. And ladies and gentlemen, no matter what you and I do with our lives, no matter how long uh, we may continue to live, a long lifespan, or if it ends tomorrow, if with our lives we can in some way glorify God, that, my friends, is a very good life. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And as we've heard today, the Antichrist and those who get rich off of his corrupt system are going to pay a heavy price in the end. God doesn't want us focusing on the things of this world because they are passing away. Instead, he wants us focused on his kingdom and the good of others. Followers of Jesus need to be careful not to fall into the trap of chasing stuff. Because as Pastor Clay reminded us today, it's just stuff. The world chases after wealth and material possession, but you and I were called to something far more valuable. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.